owner's room, I asked David to speak of his beginnings as a tuba player, and we talk again about the importance of finding a mentor. How old were you when you started playing the tuba, and why did you choose the tuba? Well, like many people, I started on trumpet. Sadly, <laughs> I started on trumpet. <laughs> oh, this is going and, dark already. And, uh, you're going to stop it now, I know. <laughs> um, and we had too many trumpets in the junior high school band. And the band director said, you have a choice of percussion or tuba. And I said, well, tuba, that'd be fun. And so I started that way, and I continued in the high school band, uh, did fairly well, and decided at that point that I probably ought to go into music ed because I wasn't sure I was a good enough tuba player to make it, and I sure didn't know enough about musicology or have any interest in that. So at that point, uh, graduating from high school, uh, I was a tuba player. The high school band director asked me what I wanted to do when I grew up, and I said, I want to have your job, and I said it exactly like that. <laughs> okay, where were you, actually? What, what state were you in? Texas. This was San okay. Antonio. San Antonio, okay. Right, and so I, wanted to, I had a scholarship at the University of North Texas, at that time, North Texas State University, and I went up there and as a tuba player, majoring in music education. And who did you study with there? At North Texas, I studied with Leon Brown, who was the trombone teacher. And starting about the second year I was there, I taught all the tuba players, all the tuba students. Really? So uh, Leon taught me, and I taught at least starting my junior year for sure. I was the tuba teacher uh, and took all the students, uh, tuba students that came uh, to the campus. It was kind of interesting. I had a couple of students who were older than I was at the time, but uh, we all got along. I learned a lot. And from there you went to uh, <laughs> University of Illinois? Right. Uh, I got really interested in going right on to graduate school, and I thought I would do that with tuba as my main instrument, main thrust. And so when I went there, uh, I got a scholarship. And I decided to stay in music education. So I, interestingly enough, have a Master of Science degree in music education. That's just what they gave at that point for music ed students. And I stayed, I stayed on tuba as being my primary instrument. And the more I got involved there, I did some teaching there as well, but I wasn't the, the primary teacher. Actually, I was. Uh, Robert Gray was a trombone teacher, a wonderful teacher. And uh, he let me just take over most of the students at that time. Uh, this was back 1962 to 64, so it was a long time, a uh, long time ago. It sounds like, uh, and tell me if I'm wrong with this, but that a lot of schools, like today, it seems like there are a lot more tuba teachers than there were back then. You're absolutely right. There were very few tuba teachers. Uh, I don't think we had one in the state of Texas, and if we did, it would have been something like Houston, where the Houston Symphony Tubist would, would have taught at Rice or what have you. Uh, but around the state, no, and that, that was a real plus for me because I got a lot of really good teaching early on. Uh, when I went to Illinois, uh, an interesting story, I didn't play in the orchestra there, and uh, that was the year it's about 1964, that the State Department sent six college university level organizations out around the out around the world, all musical organizations. I know North Texas sent their university choir, 
the brass ensemble went from the University of Kansas and the orchestra went from the University of Illinois. We were four and a half months in Central and South America and Mexico. And I wasn't the tuba player, except that just before we left, the tuba player in the orchestra couldn't go. He was a grad student, had obligations, family obligations. And I ended up going at the last minute. And that's when I had some wonderful experiences in, in many ways. And then right after that, you went to London and you, you got degrees from both the Guildhall School of Music and also the Royal College of Music, both of which are really great institutions. How did that happen? And what was, like, what was it like for you, a Texas boy, being over in London? <laughs> yeah, and I was a Texas boy at that point, too. Well, I have to go back just one notch and say that when I was at the University of Illinois studying Robert Gray, he said to me, why don't you think about going up to Chicago periodically and taking from Jacobs if he will take you? And I, I was knocked over. What teacher today would say, oh, just go study with another teacher at the same time you're studying with me? Not many, I think. But he did and I did. And I had a wonderful year and a half of going up every few weeks and studying with him. Uh, I, my lesson was just at the end of as not performance, but uh, rehearsal downtown with the Chicago Symphony. And he would come back to his home and I'd have to sit and, and watch him eating lunch. And then we'd go to the studio and have a lesson. It was a wonderful experience. But it was during that time that I decided that I would, for the heck of it, try for a Fulbright. And I do it on tuba and I do it to London because there was a guy, I believe his name was Tug Wilson, whom I never met, but was the LSO uh, tuba teach, teacher, uh, tuba performer, tuba player at that time. And, and his first name was Tug? I think it was another name, but they called it Tug Wilson. I think I'm right about that, but, but I'm not. He has a tuba player with the London Symphony. And so I did, uh, I did the Von Williams uh, tuba concerto, recorded it at the University of Illinois, and set it into the Fulbright Commission with the understanding that if I were able to come over, I would study tuba, hopefully with Wilson, uh, and then study brass bandsmanship at the Guildhall School. The Guildhall School accepted me. Wilson had, for some reason, retired by that time. I couldn't teach, with, teach uh, or take lessons with him, so I couldn't use him as a teacher. And then I went to a fellow named Charles Brewer, who had been playing with um, one of the other orchestras, it'll come to me which one, uh, in in London. And he was a good teacher, but, but the highlight of the trip was having tea and crumpets. My wife and I, I was married by then, my wife and I would go over to his home, I'd have a lesson, and then we had tea and crumpets in the afternoon with, uh, with him and with, uh, with his wife. That was a highlight of that. But when I was there, I did, I did study and I did play in a couple of English-British brass bands. As great as Arnold Jacobs was, and I'd like you to talk a little bit more about that, but as great as he was, I bet you did not get tea and crumpets at his house. Oh, I didn't. That's, in fact, I didn't guess. even get any of his lunch. I, oh, I remember okay. one time he, he was late and he came in and threw, didn't throw his tuba down, but he set his tuba down and he said, I hope you don't mind if I have lunch. He said, I'm, I'm just going to have a quick hamburger. And I said, sure, I'm fine. I can talk. So he reached into the, to the refrigerator and got out a piece of raw hamburger meat, put it on a bun 
and ate it. And raw I hamburger there, meat. Raw hamburger meat. And I thought, I can't believe this. I, but I couldn't say anything. I didn't want to say, <laughs> why do you eat raw hamburger meat? And that's not good. But I didn't say a thing. You know, all along, so many brass players around the world thought that Arnold Jacobs was about breathing. And now we know the true secret that he ate about raw eating. hamburger meat. It's about eating. And that's, that was his real secret, I think. No, he, it was wonderful studying with him. Uh, but... Uh, it was, you know, drive up, have a lesson with a friend of mine who took from Bud Herseth, and he'd take uh, a lesson from Bud, and I'd take a lesson from Mr. Jacobs, and then we'd come together and go downtown and hear the Chicago Symphony that night when we would go up to the to the nosebleed section because that's the only the only uh, tickets we could afford to buy, but it was great to hear the Chicago Symphony brass section. Uh, Herseth and you know in one end and and Jacobs at the other. It was it was really a wonderful experience. And was Reiner the conductor at that time, or was that after? Yes, his he tenure? was. And and I, uh, my friend and I, decided we would go backstage and meet Reiner. I, wow. Why the heck I would do something like that? I don't. Know. I, I would we be frightened down. to death. We were, we were, we were, I think we were shaken. And there was a queue behind, you know, and he, his door was shut. And, and we finally got up to the door and the door opened and we looked and there was a long room with, with a podium sitting on it. And on the podium was a big chair. And in the chair was Reiner looking as fierce as he ever looked. And he looked at us and said, come in. And we said, Oh, I don't think so. And we really? left. We took <laughs> off. I mean, we we did not walk into that room. And that shows you not only how dumb we were, but how scary he was. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Was your friend Wayne? That's exactly. Yes. Yeah, I meant to Wayne mention Cook. his name. Wayne Cook, yeah. University of uh, uh, Wisconsin, Milwaukee, uh, former f fourth trumpet with the Milwaukee Symphony. Uh, he and I were in Illinois together, and he and I would drive up together. And if he, if he drove, he dropped me off at Jacob's house, and he went on to Hearst. If I drove, we did the reverse, drove downtown, and drove back, and got back to Urbana-Champaign about 2 in the morning. But, but I mean, for young guys, that's just so great. Oh, you know, I, I was so fortunate, so blessed to be able to do that. And at the time, I knew it, but, but I didn't want to admit it. But now I look back on those days, I wouldn't give those for anything, give, give those away for anything. Yeah, how great. That's wonderful. Well, right after then, you were in England for, for a short time, for about a year, year and a half? I, I was. Uh, we went to, uh, we lived in London. Uh, we didn't have any money. The Fulbright Commission gave us, I think, $1,000 a month or something. It was, or maybe $1,000 for the whole year. I don't remember. But the point is that we, we couldn't eat three meals a day. We didn't have any money because what we did when we got our, our stipend from Fulbright, we first thing we did was go down to all the major performance halls in London and we'd buy our tickets and we ate on what was left. And we, we were able to eat on two meals. The first one we ate at home. Susan, you know, brought our food at the green grocer and so forth. And about five in the afternoon when the local pub opened, she and I would go to the pub, we'd each have a beer and each have whatever they had on special, and that was dinner. And we did that all year. But those are great times when you look back at them. 
Yes, when we look back. At that time, I wasn't so sure how great they were. But yeah. Yeah, now they were super. You know, your story about bailing on, on Fritz Reiner um, reminds me of a story of, of a really good friend of mine who you know, Ron Kidd. And yes. when he was in high school, he and a couple of his friends got the idea that they were going to visit Ray Bradbury, you know, the science fiction author. Oh, I do. Who yes. lived in, in Beverly Hills. And they looked up his, his address in the phone book. And they went to his house, and, you know, they were pretty scared. They knocked on the door and asked if they could meet Ray Bradbury. And his wife said, well, he's not here, but if you come tomorrow, he'll be here. And Ron, the next day, was starting his the first day of a job, and so he couldn't come. Oh. And his friends went, and they said that Bradbury spent the whole day with him. And he re oh, Ron, Ron so regrets that he just didn't can his job and go and, you know, spend the day with Ray Bradbury. Well. You have to do what you think is right at the time, and he did, and, you know, you lose some, you gain some. Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> well, after London, then, you came back and you got a teaching job right away at University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire. Did you have to audition right. for that? I, what happened was I came back and we didn't have, I mean, we really didn't have any money. We borrowed some to go to England. We came back. Susan and I moved in with my parents in San Antonio uh, in this small home that they owned, and we kind of overpowered everybody because we were running around. And I went to Wayne Cook's wedding and it was in Louisville. And I was at the wedding and my phone in the, in the Holiday Inn rang and it was Robert Gray from Illinois. How he found me, I to this day don't know. Uh -huh. But he said, David, they are needing a assistant band director and a low brass teacher at what at that time was Wisconsin State University. It just went to Wisconsin State College to Wisconsin State University. And so we had already moved into Illinois. I was going back to school for a doctorate. We had Susan's father's pickup truck. So we drove up with all of our stuff in the back of the pickup truck to Eau Claire. And I got a job, you know, didn't have to play anything. This was two days before school started. They were happy to have anybody who was alive, you know, take that position. So I was assistant band director, which meant I did the marching band. And I was low brass teacher. And that went on for two years. And every Friday, we would go to Minneapolis, St. Paul, go to the fish fry for a buck and a quarter, <laughs> and go hear the uh, Minnesota Orchestra. Wow. Well, you had a lot of great experiences when you were young. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it was cool. Very good. And so from there, you went to back to North Texas. And then why, after, after having two teaching positions, did you go back to Eastman to get your doctorate? I started my doctorate the first summer we were in, Illinois, in uh, Wisconsin. And I did it every summer. And Susan did her master's every, every summer uh, at Illinois. So I went, dropped her at Illinois. I went up to Eastman by myself and came back and picked her up. And we did that for two years. And then I went to North Texas to teach. And they said I really needed a doctorate because at that time he started as instructor. And so I had to continue to go back to Eastman while I was at North Texas for a few years. And then finally did my year residency in 69-70. Okay, and you got your doctorate at Eastman in 74. In 74, because I came back, I went through three thesis advisors at Eastman. The first two died, really. And, and people kept thinking, 
who are they going to assign Keene to the next, <laughs> yeah, who's exactly. the next guy? Because yeah. he's probably going to die. Yeah. Well, he didn't. Uh, it was a guy named, uh, uh, his name will come to me. He taught at uh, Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, Dr. Livingston. He taught there and came to Eastman in the summer to just take two or three dissertation students. And after I'd been through him one summer and been through Eastman and I got to the dissertation level and one more lecture recital, I said, I'm not going to finish this degree. I finally got tenure at North Texas without it. Why should I get it? I was promoted to assistant professor. Heck with it. And finally he called me and he said, your time's going to run out. I, he said, when do you want to come? And I said, I have no time. I was a really cocky kid then. I said, I have no time to come. I'm sorry. He called me again a few months later and he said, when can you come? And I said, he gave me the dates that he was there. I, I said, I can't come. He called me the third time and he said, well, when can you come? And I picked a day, a, a week that I had off. I didn't think he'd buy into it. And he said, I'm not going to be at Eastman that week. But he said, this is what you're going to do. Hey, he did it Frist Reiner style. This is what you're going to do. He said, you're going to fly to my home in Troy, New York. He said, we will pick you up. You will come to my house. You will stay in the spare bedroom. In the morning, you and I are going to walk the dog and we're going to review what you're going to do. During the day, you're going to tell you, I had all my notes for the, for the thesis, so I was ready to go. He said, each day you're going to write each one, one chapter. And at night when I get home, we're going to re -re review the chapter. And then you can review it when you want to. And the next day we'll do the second chapter, and the third and the fourth and the fifth. We did that. He fed me. He did everything and took me back to the airport. And I had my dissertation written. I had to redo a lot of it, you know, when it when it went back to, to my fat to my faculty advisors. But the guy bent over backwards for me and I was so thankful that he did. He was a lovely guy. I mean, he was tough. He was a linguist, so he knew what he was doing. And he was a Wagner scholar. So boy, oh boy, mine was on the use of the tubas the tubas uh, and in, in the operas and music dramas of Wagner. So that was it. I finished in, in, seven, in 74. Do you think there are many people like that in education that will devote that much time to a student? In other words, was he really an outlier? I mean, when you, when you hear about people like that, they literally change lives. And to me, that's what an educator should do or should try to do at least. Well, you're right. You know, we, we get into the, the area of mentoring which you and I have, have communicated about before. I, I back up a little bit and I look at the people that really, really helped me. And, and certainly uh, Dr. Livingston was one, but Robert Gray was another who sent me up to Chicago and inspired me to go study with one of the great tuba players in the world and, you know, get a little bit of nerve to do some things I really wanted to do rather than going back to teach in a high school or junior high band. Believe me, I have great respect for those jobs and I would love to do one. But at that point, I didn't really think I wanted to go that way. So if I back up far enough, I'm going to tell you a short story that's told to me at Music Academy by a person who came in to do a lecture 
for the students. He, he would listen to all the, the vocal students, all the vocal students perform, and he would tell them what was wrong with their performance. I mean, he'd say, you're wearing the wrong color shoes. Why did you bring that bottle of water on stage? You'd never do a Wagner opera uh, with a bottle of water with you. He'd go on and really nail them for things. And then he came back to those of us who were listening and said, let me tell you something. Every one of these students needs to have a board of directors, and that student needs to be the chair of the board. And on that board, they need to put mentors. They need to be, put people in all areas. They need to put a, a good doctor or a health person to help them with problems they might have as a, as a singer. They need to accounting, get somebody who's good at accounting because they may need them to set up their own program. They may work for, them, for themselves. They may not know how to set up a business. You need to find somebody in the music business who knows how you sing and will give you good advice. And he said, you set that up and make sure those people are agreeable to you calling them whenever you need them and them spending time with you. And by golly, that was right on. I remember that so clearly, and I'm a full believer that you put together your own board full of mentors, you know, three or four or five or six, they can be your parents, anybody, people you call for advice. Boy, that's great. And, and it sounds like the way he had it set up was these different mentors could cover different aspects of your life and career. Exactly right. He as I said, he would talk to them about the length of their dresses, probably some things that shouldn't be said now, you know, in public, but he would say that in this small, confined you know, group of people. And he said, I'm going to tell you the way it is, because I work at Cami in New York. And he said, I have, you know, I work with a lot of these singers and I can tell you what you need as a singer and what you don't need. And that's what he did. So, yeah. Wow, that's great. Well, I really appreciate this, and I'm looking forward to the time again in uh, in Santa Barbara when we can uh, go down State Street, stop, and have a a big yogurt and and talk. Yes, about and life. you did that, and it changed my life that day. It changed <laughs> your. <laughs> I, I don't think it changed your life, but it sure was. Well, that day it did. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. Well, please give Susan my best, and, and I really look forward to seeing you again sometime soon, hopefully. Same to your family, Tony. I enjoy this very much, and uh, we'll talk again soon, I'm sure. <laughs>